Hello and welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast. You're listening to me, Fiona Taylor, soon to be joined by my colleague, Chris Collins. It's July, the time of year when we enjoy the challenge of when to water, what to pick and when to feed. Chris has really banked on it being a hot summer and is hoping for a bumper crop of aubergines, tomatoes and peppers, all of which he's planted outside. I'm less optimistic because I didn't have such a great start to the season. My peppers and aubergines just didn't get beyond seedling stage. Was that the peat-free compost I used? We'll be chatting about these things later on when Anton joins us for the post bag. A couple of weeks ago, Garden Organic was asked to exhibit at Gardener's World Live. We created a tiny garden to show how even the smallest space can become a system that supports biodiversity with the use of organic growing techniques. We got a gold award for our garden and hundreds of people at the show gave us such warm feedback. So if you happen to be one of those, thank you. This month, we're keeping it all in the family as Sarah will be interviewing our very own Director of Horticultural Science, Dr Bruce Pierce. Listen in to these two passionate advocates of organic growing as they discuss just how important organic is today. We don't have any choice. We have to do this. This is the only solution. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Why not check out their amazing range of plants, seeds and equipment on organiccatalogue.com. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. There's also a special offer on plant feeds and compost just for podcast listeners at organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD5. So stay with us and let's hope we can encourage and inspire you to keep gardening the organic way. Meanwhile, I'm off to catch up with Chris to see what he's been up to over the past few weeks. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, Fiona. It was great to see you a couple of weeks ago at the Gardener's World live show at the NEC. I know. If we can uh, can afford to congratulate ourselves and the whole organisation, I'd say, because I managed to get a gold medal. That's right, because we did a show garden. So that was what it was called, uh, Small Spaces, Big Ideas. And it was basically like a a collection of ideas that we've always associated with Garden Organic. Of course, we had a composter, we had liquid uh, fertiliser maker. Well, of course, Bocking 14 was on display. We had a bog garden. We had heritage seed library plants there. We had ponds. We had vertical gardening. It really did include a real little touch of everything for people to take home and do in their own spaces. Absolutely. I think, for me, the little tiny pond um, and the tiny bog garden next to the pond (laughs) was was so inspirational. And and that's what it was about, just inspiring people to, to have a go. And I think, for me also, the fact that we built that garden on a paved area which people would think, oh, that's not very sustainable. But a lot of people don't have a choice. That's all they've got outside their door. And and actually, you can still do so many things to in, encourage an ecosystem, even within that small paved area. Exactly. And it's worth pointing out as well, as a lot of the sort of, you know, raised beds and all the materials, the pergola, all this kind of stuff, was all made out of upcycled materials, upcycled woods. You know, we didn't go out and buy anything brand new. It was all put in from uh, second-hand items. And I think that's quite important. You don't need to spend lavish amounts of money to create a nice little growing space. And it won, and it got, went down really well. It was very, very successful. In fact, I do know some of the judges. I did get a bit of a feedback. And they were saying it was packed full of good ideas, ideas that people could do at home that were relatable, and that's what won it for us. That's the thing, isn't it? It's about showing people how easy it can be. It doesn't matter how big or small your space is. 
you, there's so much we can do to support biodiversity, to grow our own food, to, to have an area that, that, that brings us joy. I mean, the whole show actually had a sense of people wanting to do positive stuff to support nature, didn't you think? Yes, it was. There was a very, very big theme running through it, wasn't there, of, a, of sort of reclaimed land and reclaimed materials. Quite a lot of wild free planting. There was the old garden that was a bit more formal, but you could see that's what they were really going for. And I think even at Chelsea, when I was there at Presto, that was also tended to be the theme. It was much more freer and more relaxed planting. I've got a feeling the same is going to be there at Hampton Court as well. It, it's good to see that the gardening sector is really beginning to pick up the pace on on this now. That actually there is so much we can do as gardeners. I mean, we've been saying it for years, haven't we? It's garden organic, but it's becoming much more mainstream, this messaging. It certainly is. And, and from, from a person who's been around the subject for a long time, the change is incredibly palpable. With, the thinking is completely different. When I started, it was much more regimented. It was about borders being kept nice and tidy and nice straight edges and striped lawns. I think you can still have those things, but the fact we're embracing nature and sustainability around the edge of that as well is really, really important. And planting as many different types of plants as possible, encouraging as many different types of pollinators in as possible, less about the blocks of the same plant, less about a kind of a monoculture in your own garden and more about mixing it up as much as possible. Well, even in a, even on a, on a macro scale with our local authorities, if you drive from Coventry Station up to right at the moment, it's full of wild wildflowers, all the verges, the roundabouts. And so everybody's starting to embrace embrace this diversity. And that can only be a positive thing, can't it, Fiona? I think so. Um, how's the biodiversity going on your on your allotment, Chris? Well, it's good. There's plenty of biodiversity weeds there. <laughs> it's incredible. For me, the, the period between March and June is just so intense, so busy. But yeah, it's looking good. All my hardy annuals are starting to flower. And I need a lot of water. It's, it's hot in London, to be honest with you. So I tend to get down there very, very early in the morning and really deep water so it gets the maximum impact. Everything's quite slow for me um, in terms of growth. I took a bit of a risk this year, Fiona, because I've gone for quite a lot of exotic materials. I've got a lot of peppers, chilies. I've even got melon down there. I've got a lot of sweet corn, aubergine, cucumber, tomato, all planted out in the open sort of raised beds and plots. And so I'm hoping for a hot summer because those crops might not do so well if they don't. I'm in quite a sun trap where I am, but I'm kind of going for the stuff that, and the stuff I kind of use a lot indoors as well. So fingers crossed it'll be all right, but I need to keep that watering. I need to keep that weeding going, that's for sure. So if we have a wet summer, a cool summer, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be a great harvest time for you, is it? Probably not. No, I've got a couple of backup beds with plenty of turnips and sweets and parsnips in. But I'm really hoping, you know what, I'm always, I use a lot of chilies in my cooking. I'm always jealous of, uh, of Rich Steen. He's always got that massive jar of dried chilies in it. So I've envisaged that's what I'm going to have at the end of the autumn. So I'm praying to the sky that we get a nice hot summer. So, Chris, you you talked about hardy annuals. Actually, I just wanted to quickly ask you what 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 uh, what hardy annuals do you plant? Well, I've got nasturtium. I've got a lot of calendula. I've got sweet pea. I've got godetia. I've got loads of sunflowers. I've got I've got seven or eight types of sunflowers in big bands that are all all stuck putting on a lot of growth. So it's quite diverse my my planting. I've got cornflower as well. A classic few types of those. I mean, you can get them any gun set. They're very cheap. You sell them straight to the ground. They're, they're a win-win all round, really. And I tend to put them in bands along the edges of the beds. Beautiful colour. I mean, must bring in so much, you know, beauty to, to the allotment. 
you also were telling me earlier that actually um, when you get your stuff out of the greenhouse, you don't plant it in rows. Tell us, tell us how you plant it. <laughs> well, I tend to do a thing. I mean, this comes from my immunity days, really. I tend to, I tend to what I call tapestry planting. So I put a few plants in together. So I'll describe one bed, my runner bean bed. So I'll put up my canes into sort of wigwam shapes. I'll put my runner beans up those. Then I'll underplant with uh, French beans, ground covering French beans. And then I'll dot tomatoes around the edge of that. So there's kind of like three tiers to it, really. In the old days, if I was a parks man, I would do that with bedding. I'd do dot plants, which could be canna, then I'd have maybe pelagoniums or, or petunias as a carpet, and then I'd have labida as an edging. I've kind of done that with veg, really. And it just works. It seems to work really well. And you've just got these little diverse pockets along with the hardy annuals that run along the side. Makes it a bit more interesting, Fiona, really. That's kind of why I look at it. And it also does cover the soil, which is really important. Yes, it's true. I mean, because it's been quite a slow season so far and things have not taken off as quick, I've seen a lot of soil and that means a couple of things. We want... You know, it's transpiring, you're losing moisture out it too. It's open plan for weeds to come in and see. The quicker I can get a canopy over the soil, the better. I do try to encourage it a little bit more, a bit more growth and, and retain water by mulching with my compost. But obviously, the sooner I can see nothing but a blanket of foliage and flower, the better for me, really. And what are you sowing now, Chris? Well, I'm still doing a bit of sowing. I lost, it's been a bad year, funny enough, for slugs and snails on my allotment. And they haven't been around often, but as soon as it's rained, they seem to have come out in force. So I lost a lot of my salad crops earlier on. They just demolished those. So I'm, I'm re-sowing those. I'm re-sowing my rocket, which tends to get hit by a flea beetle early in the season. So on Anton's advice, actually, I sow that a bit later. I'm putting uh, turnips and swedes in because I absolutely love them. And I can leave them in the ground as a winter stock so I can have my roast dinners. I will also, I tend to thicken up my runner beans with direct planting a runner bean seed into the soil this time of year just to double them up a bit because that's feasible. So there's still still a lot of seed sowing going on down there. It never stops, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, no. If only, if only there were, you know, 36 hours in a day. And are you still seed sowing in your garden, Fiona? Well, yes, I am, but that's only because I'm hugely disorganised. Um, I am still sowing courgettes because I'm hoping that they will fly away and get going quick enough. And actually, if they don't, um, I never mind a small courgette. I mean, they're lovely if you pick them as, as baby courgettes. So, mm. yeah, um, I'm still I'm still frantically sowing for for a few food crops. Yes, like you, uh, carrying on with lettuces and and transplanting some of my lettuce seedlings into pots that I dot around on on a table outside the kitchen, so that I remember they're there. Because that's the other thing is I'm terrible for remembering what I've grown, and uh, I need to to make sure I go and harvest things. So, so having them outside the kitchen window reminds me. I'm I am also sowing some herbs still. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm continuing with my my, my successional sowing of dill and basil. I just I just love it. And again, it's one of those things that even if they don't get very big, they're wonderful as, as small. Even micro growth mm. is absolutely brilliant for those really tasty herbs. Oh, you'd be proud of me, actually, because I've got some really nice basil on the uh, balcony. Big, leafy basils that have done really well. They've enjoyed that south facing. I'm cropping that now and I do. I, just, I sow a bit more with it. Last night with a bit of mozzarella and tomato with that fresh basil, it was delicious. Yeah, I mean, the, the joy of harvesting basil, of course, is, is you know, if you're pinching it out all the time. Mm. So then you're just constantly getting more and more leaves and, and they're so quick. They turn around so quick. So it's why I, I love harvesting basil. It's so satisfying. So is there anything else? Are you harvesting anything from the garden? Um, yes, uh, my raspberries, actually. Lots and lots of golden raspberries. And we've had about a, a, a sort of cereal bowl a day for the last four or five days. 
absolutely joyous uh, you you cannot beat a fresh raspberry and they because I, I bring them in with great intentions I'll, I'll, I'll make a little pot of jam with that and of course no that doesn't work because we just all get into the bowl <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> how about you yeah, well I my, my big thing the last three, four weeks is I've had incredible amounts of strawberries I mean loads and loads of fresh organic strawberries which I have to say are an absolute the taste has just been incredible if you get them when they're that really dark sort of red you know, they're just so sweet and delicious. No cream needed, that's for sure. They're coming to an end now, which is um, a bit sad because I've been away a lot. And my wife got to eat most of them, but you can't have everything, can you? <laughs> <laughs> you can't. I mean, you know, we 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 feel like we're at the height of summer now, but you have a lot of history of working in Scotland. So how does it differ a bit further north from where we are? Well, I reckon, I mean, it's a good sort of three, four weeks later than we are in a way. Um, and it tends to be, I would say, I always felt it was like five, six degrees cooler. So there's got advantages and disadvantages of that. So the advantages is obviously, I think you can grow things like temperate crops, like salads and, and those, and soft fruit for that matter, who like the lower temperatures, they tend to thrive a lot more up there. Whereas it down here, like I mean, I put some spinach in, it tends to bolt, my coriander's bolting, the heat tends it make, wants to put it to seed. But I just think there they have to hang back a little bit more. And also the light levels are different because, you know, obviously it gets darker in the winter and you have to wait for those days to start extending. But I think it's all about timing when I was up there. I just, you have to just hold your horses a little bit more. That, that's the truth. But I think they have advantage to having that cooler temperature for, for quite a lot of crops. Yes, and that's the thing, isn't it? Because we're, we, we've just been talking about you growing sort of hot summer crops, you know, and really, really wanted to get going with with, uh, with aubergines and tomatoes, getting them all outside, you know, and the likelihood is, and, and, and let's hope, Chris, you know, you'll have a really successful harvest yeah. out of that. Actually, that's probably a risk. And I feel confident enough in London that I might get a result out of that. Yeah, I wouldn't put a melon unless I had a glasshouse surrounding it. But crops like that and aubergine, tommies, I think you're probably much better up north further north you go to get it under glass where you can keep a better eye on it. Now, we've been talking about uh, all this work we've been doing and and, uh, and we're both looking forward to our holidays. Let's have a little chat about what we're doing to prepare for that. It is a jeopardy time for me. I'm not so worried about the allotment because that's starting to establish now. I can mulch it. And if the worst comes to the worst, I've always got my mate Pete on the next allotment and I can drop him a text and he'll, and he'll water. But it's, that's not so much a concern for me. The balcony and all the hanging baskets, which I have to say are already looking incredible. The growth on it, the flower, the balcony is looking amazing. You talked about mulching. So is that where you would get yourself really prepared? You'd, you'd perhaps water, then mulch, then water, then go on holiday. Would that help on the balcony particularly? I think so. Baskets and stuff are really, really full. So if I can get a bit of uh, top dress, I usually use worm cast or something like that to get in there to help retain the moisture, I will. But to be honest, there's no real way around not watering a basket. It just They just need the water. They really do. Otherwise, they're just going to go over. So you can buy these things or you can make one yourself. You can buy these taps that you get onto an old water bottle, like a you know, steel water bottle, and they've got a little tap on and it'll just re- you fill them up and you sink them into the basket and that release water. If you don't want to spend money on that, the original way was you put five or six layers of cling film over the mouth of the water bowl, then prick it with a pin and sit that in as well. So you've got a slow release of water. And of course, we are in the UK, so there's probably a good chance it might rain a couple of times as well. <laughs> My house plants are a big worry as well. All the small ones will get lifted and sunk into the bath, into water there. And uh, those two methods seem to have worked well in the past. I mean, I worry about drowning them, to be honest. You know, putting them in the bath with a little bit of water, that, that worries me. But you're right, some plants are very sensitive to overwatering. 
uh, particularly houseplants because they like free draining. But I, there's not much else I can do about it because I can't persuade anybody I know to come in the house and water for me. <laughs> Bigger houseplants, like the big weeping figs, the cheese plants, all that, I'll just give them a good drink before I go and they'll ride it out, no problem. Um, and what about the weeds? Do you think they're going to get away from you? Well, they definitely will on the allotment. I mean, if I'm not there for a day, they get away from me. <laughs> it's like it is. You know, luckily I've been doing this a long time, so I, I like to think of my, I'm fast at sorting it out again. So I just need a good, good day on there. My bum in the air, weeding, and that's what solves it, really. And anyway, you know, it's cheaper than the gym, isn't it? So there you go. It is cheaper than the gym, that's for sure. I mean, I would have thought the mulching would help a bit with the weeding, though. Absolutely, because they just don't get a grip. And, and, and moisture retention as well. And those sort of annual weeds, I get a lot of a speed well coming into the allotment. You know, I don't know if you know sea well, it's like a blue flower where you see it in the grass in the spring but it kind of grips the soil and it's a real quite difficult to pull out but that's in a mulch that'll just pull out really gently and that's the reason but also keeping the humidity around plants like courgettes that you just mentioned making sure the air's not too dry that might encourage mildews and stuff as well you can't go wrong with a homemade compost mulch especially this time of year i was going to talk about compost actually what should we be doing to to, to sort of look after our compost heap over the summer but I like to speed mine up, so I get in with my hands and turn it, and I also like to water it, keeping the moisture in there, keeping the air in there, then it rots much quicker. What about feeding, Chris? Really, I, I start to cut down on it a bit. I want potassium in, so I want fruit and I want flour, so I'm just using bocking 14 pellets. I put a few out on the balcony in each container and basket. That tends to be enough, and I'll give them a sprinkle over the allotment as well as I mulch, and that's that'll slow release That'll keep them happy. Other people like to top up with tomato feeds and stuff like that. But because I've done all that seaweed extract feeding earlier in the year uh, and I've got decent soil from composting, I just now go with a slow release method. Right. So we've got our jobs to do to get ready to go on holiday. I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm I'm really ready. I am really ready for <laughs> holiday. For a gardener between March and now is such an intense period. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and I think you just come to a point where you go, Everything's in the ground. Everything's growing. I'm gonna. I don't need to be so such a fuss pot about it. So I'm gonna take a breather, relax, and maybe recharge and ready to get going again. I'm quite looking forward to seeing it bigger and uh, more colourful when I get back. It's the first thing I do. Actually, I'll just go straight through the house, out the back door, and go and look at the garden. I can't exactly. wait to see it. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> enjoy your break, Fiona. Definitely enjoy. Yes. Have a good time there. You've heard. You too. You too, right. Chris. Now we move from gardens and gardening to the broader world of organic growing. Sarah Brown's been chatting to Dr Bruce Pierce, Garden Organics Director of Horticultural Science. Bruce started out working for Gardening Witch before serving at the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food in the 90s. From there, he went to the Organic Research Centre looking after innovation and research in organic farming. He's also worked for the Soil Association. A true believer in organic methods, Bruce is now applying his knowledge to horticulture. Bruce, I'm so glad you could join me, although as ever we're chatting on Zoom because I believe you're on your way up to Scotland. Yeah, hi Sarah. Yeah, I, I live in Scotland, but, I, but I've been down at Wrighton at head office this week to do the flower show at the weekend um, and also to catch up with the team. You moved to Garden Organic after working for many years at the Organic Research Centre. Tell me a little bit about your work there. Yep. So I was 20 something years at the Organic Research Centre. So it's a independent charity. 
that focuses on delivering useful research to organic farmers and the organic sector in the UK. It works across cereals to cows, cabbages, uh, social economic and the whole range of the remit. Ah, sounds much needed and really, really interesting. Bruce, can we start at the beginning to help our listeners understand what exactly are the principles of organic growing? Can you sum them up quite simply? Yeah, I, for me, I always go back to IFOM, which is the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movement, which sort of is the heart of organic growing and farming in the world. And what it does is it, it has these four principles to organic principle of health, the principle of ecology, fairness and the principle of care. So healthy really is about the health of soil, plant, animal, human and planet, one and indivisible, which is one of the statements of early organicness. Um, Ecology should be living and basing our systems on ecological systems and cycles and work with them and emulate them rather than trying to control them. Fairness is really about we should build relationships to ensure fairness with regard to the common environment and to life opportunities. So that's about people as well as the environment. And then care is actually about we should be take precautionary principles and responsible in the way we protect the health and the well-being of current and future generations in the environment. So that's the way they set their stall out. And I'm very happy to sign up to that. I think that's great. And then under that, actually, they, they set an iPhone standard, which, if you like, is the, uh, the world standard for organic production. It's very interesting, Bruce, from what you've said. And I love this concept of fairness and ecology. But there's no mention there about the, the use of pesticides and artificial chemicals, because this is what most people associate with organic growing. It, it seems a much broader picture, doesn't it? Well, to an extent, they're nearly irrelevant, because what we're saying is it's a positive way of dealing with things. So if you're looking at the principle of ecology, so it's actually living within these systems and the, the life cycles and working with them rather than trying to control them. And again, if you're looking at the principle of care, about being precautionary the way you're dealing with things and responsible. We know that there's problems with industrial farming and we're using pesticides in farming where we look at the biodiversity problems that have been created by the way we've been farming since the Second World War, really. It's so true. And if you bring it back down to your own personal garden, if you understand what's growing in your garden, if you're observant about all the life forms within it and how they relate to each other, and you love it all, you really don't want to damage it by using those pesticides. So it's almost like an afterthought. Absolutely. I've worked with farmers over the last 30 years in organics, and it's looking at their farm as a system. So how everything's interrelated and how you can change one things and how it impacts on others about rotations, about your choice of varieties and, and all these things. And I'm now coming to Garden Organic. I'm really interested to see how we can take that concept and really illustrate it to gardeners and people on their allotments which they're already doing but actually to see if we can get more of that diversity and so actually doing much more for them and for the environment and i'd read that on average plant insect and bird life is 50 percent more abundant on organic farms than on agrochemical farms and that must be the same in gardens as well 50 percent that's a huge figure isn't it yeah yeah and we know that sort of biodiversity is better on organic farms because there is generally more diversity within the crop within the fields and the hedgerows and all these sort of things and again within within gardens gardens are little ecosystems which are can be incredibly diverse And and to be truthful, if you're looking at actually what is the most diverse 
allotments. Allotment uh-huh. sites are incredibly diverse. And I put that down to being that you have your each will have your whole allot with your half or your quarter and you'll all grow your different things on it. And then you will that will be replicated over many allotments on any one site. Yes. And if you compare that to the the fields that surround me, for instance, where I am at home, they're just monoculture. I've just got one uh, huge field of wheat one side of me and one huge field of rape the other side of me. And that's it. Yeah, absolutely. My whole research was driven by diversity. Okay, so there are some who dismiss organic growing, saying that if all farmers were organic, the output would be so low, we wouldn't be able to feed the world. Is this true? No, I think the simple answer is no, but that would make a terrible podcast. (laughs) So um, yes, there is certain crops have lower yields in organic. So things like Wheat can have 25 to 50% of the the yield. Wheat is a very highly bred crop to respond to non-organic agriculture. Going back to can we feed ourselves? Uh, Oh, is there enough food? Actually, food is about politics. This is about much production. So probably as many people are obese in this world as that are starving. So it's about food supply or, and where we get the food to rather than do we have enough food. That's so true, because I've always thought that politics and war prevent the fair distribution of food. We produce a surplus, in fact, plus this terrible modern human habit of waste. Yeah. So I, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like between 25 and 30 percent of the food that is harvested actually gets eaten. The rest is lost along the way through damage or other on the supermarket shelves, or we take it home and we let it rot in our fridge. So, yeah, there is there's lots of food there. And also, we're probably entering into the arena of the grain, for instance, that we grow, whether it gets fed to animals or whether it gets yeah. fed to humans. The vast majority of grain in this world is fed to livestock and isn't fed to us. So it goes through another, is processed through another animal, we eat the animal. Uh, I'm not advocating for everyone to go vegan. That's a choice people can make. I can see there is a real place for livestock in organic farming systems. So for me, it's about eating less meat, but better meat, and then actually making sure I'm eating more vegetables and uh, and plant-based products. So what we're saying is, Anyone who talks about feeding the world in those very broad terms, it's much more nuanced than that, isn't it? It's about distribution of food. It's about diet. It's about what we do with the food. It's all of that. And frankly, agrochemical monoculture farming is killing the planet. We know that. So I think we have no choice. Yeah, I completely agree. So if we're looking at just biodiversity, there is plenty of information now in the literature, and particularly a German study, which showed that in 25 years, we've lost 75% of flying insects. That's 75%. Anyone who is as young as we are, Sarah, will remember driving <laughs> around in the, probably the late 70s and early 80s, and the amount of insects that would be on your windscreen. It's just nothing like that or none at all now. So I think that just shows just a simple thing we can see every day that actually how biodiversity has changed. Do you know, it's funny you should mention that that windscreen analogy. I've heard it before, but what I've noticed this summer in particular, I've had my window open at night because it's been so hot. Not one insect has flown in. Now, in previous years, I've had moths flapping around. I've had all sorts of extraordinary insects that have come in. It's silent now. Yeah, I, I agree. It's quite scary what's happening. Let's talk about how important it is to buy organic, not just because it's chemical free, but because you're supporting the organic farming system across the world. But actually, 
there's a very real problem that most of us face, and particularly now, is that organic produce is currently much more expensive. Why is this, Bruce? Um, There are some places where we know it is more expensive to produce. And so things like soft fruit and others, actually, the yield is lower. Others, it is seen as a premium product and for the elite. And so you will have a markup in certain supermarkets. So we're Um, being manipulated by the supermarkets, is what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think there's there's plenty of evidence. If you subscribe to a vegetable box or bag scheme, the price of that vegetable is going to be very similar to um, non-organic in a supermarket. Fewer middlemen accept that, but actually you can find ways of buying organic foods that are not that expensive. If we're looking across the channel at France, Germany, the prices aren't the same sort of difference. I think it's also about being quite canny when you face the challenges of rising prices in in the food shop, because few of us in this country can afford to be 100% organic, especially if you're feeding a family. I remember 20 years ago when my boys were growing up and seemed to be permanently hungry, as boys always are. I tried to work out what it was that they ate every day and then concentrate on finding those things as organic. And it kind of boiled down to bread, pasta and apples, for instance, were top of the list because I knew they would eat them every day. So those were the ones that I, if I could, would buy organic. Then I started to grow my own veg, fruit and salad to supplement it knowing that my own efforts might not be supermarket quality, but they were definitely pesticide-free. And I think that brings us back to gardeners. If we can grow, no matter on how small a scale, if we can grow to supplement our diet, we're actually enjoying organic produce. I mean, we heard earlier Chris and Fiona eating their strawberries and their raspberries. Now, those are relatively easy to grow in this country, but they will cost a bomb, as you quite rightly said, if you were to buy them organically. I think it's about being selective, isn't it, as to what you buy? I was going to say exactly the same thing, because actually you can buy, if you like, the commodity stuff, as you said, pasta, spuds and these things organically at a reasonable price. So actually concentrating what you want to grow on the sort of more treat stuff. For me, there's a double win there. It's the pleasure of growing them and actually with your children to actually show how you do it. I would think that there would be less waste because if you put all that energy into growing it, are you going to stick it in the fridge and let it rot? Would you buy local or would you buy organic? Now, I see you you hit my middle class conscience here. Um, (laughs) Well, I frequently having this crisis in September, stood in the supermarket looking at apples do I buy organic from the Southern Hemisphere or do I buy conventional from Kent? And I've never really come down to a great solution on that. With apples, again, there can be uh, pesticide residues. And I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to say it's difficult. Um, <laughs> You're um... going to sit on the fence. <laughs> okay, I'm going to contribute by saying, I think I are on the side of buying organic because even if that apple has been transported across from France or Spain, at least I know that an acreage of France or Spain, which is committed to organic growing. And that's what I want to encourage. Bruce, people think of organic as old fashioned and traditional because of the close link to the land and the soil and the wildlife. But actually, I think it's where the most exciting research is taking place. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. Uh, Organic growing is very information intensive. Uh, If you're looking at what can be done conventionally, uh, the technology can solve things and they're dealing with things. 
if you're growing organically, to have an awful lot of knowledge in an awful lot of different ways. So the research has really helped that. So one of the things we worked on was producing a population of wheat. So most, most wheats will be a monoculture, so very narrow genetic base. We want to look and say, right, well, actually, if we're looking at more resilience in these, we want a, a population. So this would be like a, a crowd of wheat rather than individuals, clones. And actually, we, it took us about 20 years to actually really build this up and look at it. But actually, what it showed was that you had a very stable type of crop. It's now be taken on commercially and a number of the bakers and uh, they, they love it. There's a story behind it, but also it, it's good in organic systems. And are there other examples of research that have fired yeah, you? Yeah, we worked on looking at how can you improve the, the lay phase in agriculture. That's where you increase the fertility and sort of rest the land, if you like. Quite often it would be grass. And so that's called the lay. And we, we produced a, a, a very mixed seed to go in there. So that was some grasses and some legumes and some other herbs, um, which became uh, very productive, put an awful lot of nitrogen and carbon back in the soil. And, and that was very organic when we did it. But actually, as things have moved on, the best conventional farmers are using this sort of stuff and this research. So if you like where we were 20 years ago or 15 years ago, conventional agriculture is, is catching up. I'm, I'm going to take you to task there. I hate to call it conventional because I always think of organic as conventional. It's what we've always done over the centuries. I call it agrochemical farming, I'm afraid, which is the monoculture farming we have now. Yeah, I, I get you there. It's just, yes, yeah, the language I've always used. Actually, talking about language, buzzword seems to be now regenerative agriculture. What do you think about that? Is that a good way to refer to organic? So my, my problem with the brand, if you like, of uh, regenerative agriculture is it means everything and nothing. There's a big problem for many in the UK, particularly in England, where organic became a dirty word a number of years ago and they didn't want to accept it, it was a viable good way of farming. And uh, a lot of the techniques have been taken and applied elsewhere, still using some agrochemicals. And it's doing a good job, regenerative. But actually, I just feel they're trying to reinvent the wheel. We have organic agriculture. It is regenerative. And actually, it has a legal status where if you say to someone, I farm organically, there is a legal minimum about how they produce their food. Yes, I think that's a very good point, because if you certified as an organic farmer, that helps the consumer, that helps you and I yeah. to be able to choose our food with confidence, because we we can see that logo certification. Precisely. Yeah. Organic is more than a list of techniques. It's a system. But actually, we don't really know what's in or out in regenerative, where we very clearly know what's in. If something has got an organic label in, in the shop, you know it has met this legal minimum. Mm. Going back to the research, I think the other area that I find exciting and which is crucial to any farming, whatever format it is, it's the soil. It's the stuff that we actually grow stuff in. And I find that the most exciting research. And again, I think in the organic field, that's where the understanding is developing hugely, isn't it? It's less about it's less about spending money on researching the best fertilizer, the quick fix bullet fertilizer, more about understanding about the soil and the life within it. Yeah. If you look back 15, 20 years, non-organic agriculture was about how do you control nature? And so actually your soil was basically a matrix that you would put your water, but your pesticides and your herbicides and your fertilizer in. With an organic, it was about feeding the soil, not the plants. So it's how do you improve the quality of your soil so that it is living, it is vital, it has got the things in it 
that, that the plants need, but also making sure that it helps with the water retention and so it helps with flooding and those sort of aspects but also it's the nutrients within the soil are cycled and recycled and so actually it is about making sure you have a healthy vibrant soil that can supply what the plant needs when it needs it. To me, if I was a farmer, it would be a no-brainer. Also, in terms of the fact that most of the solutions are nature-based solutions. So instead of spending a lot of money on a a chemical fertilizer and research into that chemical fertilizer, I could save myself a shed load of money just by using manure, compost, whatever, adding vegetative matter, decaying matter to the soil. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, they take a huge amount of care and focus on their soil because that's what is the engine of their farm. Wow. So, Bruce, we've covered a lot, but I'm going to ask you to, this is probably impossible, but I'm going to ask you to sum up, can you, in just a few words, why organic is important in this 21st century? Um, Yeah, I think we don't have any choice. I think as we go forward, we're seeing the climate crisis, we're seeing the overwhelming biodiversity crisis. And the only way to address those is to have a more sustainable farming system. But also, if we're looking particularly at the biodiversity, we have to stop using the chemicals we're using on those and actually working with nature and within those systems. Otherwise, we're just not going to be able to produce our food. So I don't think there's actually, we don't have a choice. We have to do this. We have great farmers around the world. And so I I have quite confidence, but actually this is the only solution. Oh, that's a wonderful, positive, upbeat answer. Thank you, Bruce. And I think it also applies to our gardens, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I had a great time at the uh, Gardeners World Live at the NEC. And one of the things I was really trying to talk to people who came on on the garden there was actually we can all make a difference, whether it's just planting up a a window box or whether you've got a larger garden, you can do much more and you can put your pond in and these sort of things. And I think we can do this. Brilliant. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for spending time discussing this. Have a good journey. Thanks very much, Sarah. So now time to turn to some of your questions. We've been opening up the post bag. I've got Anton Rosenfeld and Chris Collins here with me. The first question we've had is is a really big area that it's really great that somebody has raised um, some of the issues that they've had. And that is about going peat free. So I'm going to read you the question we've had. I'm really struggling to find a good seed sowing alternative to peat based compost. I've tried numerous peat free alternatives and I've tried multi-purpose and seed specific mixes. I've been careful to buy fresh compost for each sowing, but the results have been disappointing. Poor germination or complete germination failure, or if they do germinate, really poor growth. For example, I've had seedlings at about one inch high and not grown for months. I'm so frustrated because I used to have lots of success and I really don't want to go back to peat compost. Is there anything which you can advise? So first of all, Anton, can you give us a sense of how often you're hearing these sorts of questions? Yeah, they do come up from time to time. I think we need to be aware that peat-free compost is still quite a work in progress. Um, We've used peat for quite a long time, but perhaps people are still not sort of getting that sort of consistency when they are making peat-free compost because they're making them from natural processes. So each batch might vary slightly. And I think the thing is we need to be able to 
as a grower, respond to those little changes, sort of observe things really carefully rather than just doing things by rote. Um, so for the poor germination, there's a number of things that I've found. I, I think peat-free composts sometimes aren't as good at wicking moisture into all the corners of, of the seed trays. So it's really important that you um, press the mix well, you tamp it down well to make sure there are no air pockets where seeds might get trapped in a dry space. To make sure that it's um, well soaked as well, I always stand my trays in some water first and I just let it soak up right the way through through the mix. And you can just see the tops um, start to glisten when you do that. So you know it's then time to take the seed tray out of your tray of water. I, I also find that peat-free composts are less forgiving of sort of cool temperatures as well. Um, so you need to make sure that you've got it in a pretty nice warm place for seeds to germinate. Otherwise, there's a danger they might sit there and, and rot. So, yeah, I think if you're doing all those things, then that will certainly help with your sort of success in germination. Chris, what's been your experience? Well, I have the same thing. And it's interesting now. Now, if I walk through my local supermarket, a year ago, there was two years ago, there was no peat-free compost. Now there seems to be six or seven varieties, obviously, as this message is getting through. So I've kind of played around with them all. I have a, a steadfast one that I grow for seed, that I use for seed sowing, and I follow the same pattern I would as if I was using peat to a certain degree in the fact that I do, I agree with Anton, I always like to pre-soak the, the, the soil so it's nice and warm. I don't want to see too many lumps and bumps in it. Some of these peat freezer are full of old bits of wood and this kind of thing, so I take them out. And then, to be honest with you, I like to sieve over the top of my seeds if, if they need to be in the dark, which most seeds do. So I'll sieve over the top of them and I've got a nice fine layer of soil then over the top of those seeds. And then really the big one for me is I put them in heated propagators and the germination rates I've had with them are very, very successful. So I get them up quite quick. I think the important thing with it is to move them on quite quickly. So then I'll move them into a, a peat-free multi-purpose, which is where the game changes a little bit. So I, I'm a big believer in pricking out. I like them to be stimulated by the pricking out. And I think this is where you might have a problem with them just sitting there. So when the seed is up to about four, six leaves, if it's sitting quite small, I will then feed it seaweed extract. I'll start to give it a boost to try and kick it along. Um, I think that my watering and feeding techniques, because I'm obviously a big container grower, have definitely changed due to peat-free. I think I have to be far more attentive. So I think that my daily routine is changed into the fact that I have to be a bit more aware that, that a peat-free compost might not be as consistent as ones I used many years ago. So vigilance is, is really key. So when we've got our seedlings, one of one of the problems that's been highlighted is that is that the growth stops. And uh, Chris has just talked about about uh, a seaweed feed. I, I wonder at what stage should we intervene with a feed if we feel that the seedling should have moved on and it, and it, and it hasn't? Can you feed them too early? Yeah, we want to make sure they've got sort of three or four true leaves on them really if, if they're very very small then there's a risk you could scorch the seedling usually in my experience it's when they get to about the three or four leaf stage that's when they seem to stop so that is probably the time to start start feeding them and yeah if, if they have if they have stopped growing then the, the, sometimes what happens with peat-free composts is 
And particularly when the temperatures are cool, then some of the nitrogen that is in the mix gets sort of locked up, particularly when there's quite a lot of sort of woody products in the peat-free compost. And that's what you, why you end up with these sort of seedlings turning yellow and sort of standing still. And so you will then probably need to provide a sort of supplementary feed, a seaweed feed, a comfrey feed, um, something like that to get it going again. And the other thing I do is just try is to sort of move it on into a sort of compost, which has got a bit more nutrients into it. it might even move it into a mix, which has got some of my own homemade compost in at that stage. I often do that. And I, I see the seedlings really start to perk up after, you know, just a few days. They The leaves start to turn green and they start growing again. So moving them on quickly is is a, is a good way of uh, of getting them to those nutrients, those extra nutrients that they need. Yes, it, it can help. I mean, the liquid feed is a real sort of instant fix, but moving them on is a, perhaps a better sort of long term sustainable solution. So we've got past the seedling stage now. Um, and let's say we're now uh, potting up into bigger pots. I know you do a lot of that on your balcony, Chris, for example. Are you finding that peat free compost is performing well in in a larger pot? Well, I think it is really. There's a few things to look out for. That's all that maybe makes it behave a bit differently. And one is it can be it can look very dry on the surface, but be quite moist underneath so sticking your finger in and, and seeing how moist it really is, is is quite important but i don't i've not found a massive massive difference uh, between um peat and peat free now i think that the, the multi-purposes are getting better and better i, I don't know whether anton would agree with that yeah i found the same really i, I found once i've gotten into the potting stage the plants really seem to seem to go on just just like chris says uh, all plants in a pot are going to need feeding anyway so it, that, that's that's really the same for whether you're growing in peat or peat free okay now we've had another question here about perennial uh, vegetables i'm going to read the question because um i think it's touching on something quite interesting I've read various pieces of advice online about growing brassicas as a perennial crop. Is this something you'd recommend? And do you have any tips for doing this successfully? Well, we think about um, brassicas as as annual crops generally. But Anton, tell us what your experience is in in this realm. Okay, my experience is actually from growing quite a few African kales. A lot of these come from particularly Zimbabwe, actually. There's a lot of Zimbabwean people on allotments and they will always be growing perennial kale. And the best thing to do is to take an interest in what they're growing and ask them nicely for a cutting. Um, I find any time from about March onwards is a good time to take a cutting. It's really easy. Just basically you can break a heel off and um, just remove most of the leaves so they don't lose too much water and stick them in in some compost and they they do strike really really easily Um, i found the perennial kale it will keep going for i'd say at least two or three years sometimes up to five years and you do end up with this massive bush that you can harvest from all the year round so it's good for filling in that hungry gap period i found all sorts of unexpected benefits as well um, for instance i found that pigeons cannot fly and eat at the same time so they can't <laughs> attack the top bits of your kale so you don't actually need to be quite so vigilant with netting them but i found after about sort of four or five years you do end up with quite a sort of mass of woody stems on it and then i think it's probably time to 
um, take another cutting and start off somewhere else again. So these African kales, how would we get hold of them? It, it is about going up and, and, and talking to people and, and finding out more, or, or is this something that's a bit more widely available? Unfortunately, that's the only way I've managed to get hold of it. It really doesn't seem to be in any seed catalogues at the moment, the, particularly the Zimbabwean kales. There are some sort of English equivalents like Dor Benton kale, but they're, they're not quite the same, really. Sounds like an entrepreneurial um, opportunity to me, uh, Anton. <laughs> what about, um, does it does not, because it cause any problems with um, rotation or anything like that? Would, would you have a perennial bed, a permaculture bed? Would they be in one spot and that would be fine? Obviously, with brassicas, we are sort of worried about club root if you're growing them too frequently in the same place. So after, after you've sort of taken it out, let's say after three or four years, then you'd want to put it in a different place the next next time. So I often think of perennial plants as sort of rotating a lot more slowly in time. You're sort of moving them around in slow motion as opposed to moving them to a different place every year. It's a, a fascinating subject. I, I love the idea of perennial vegetables because it just mixes everything up, you know, beautifully on, on the on the veg patch. Chris, tell us about your experience of, of perennials on the allotment. I mean, I obviously grow a lot of stuff seasonally, but I wanted one bed. I wanted one bed that I wanted just permanent. Where actually I did put in, that's where my strawberries are, my artichokes, this kind of stuff that is. So it's almost treated like an herbaceous border, if you like. And I agree with Anton. I think that all herbaceous borders need lifting and dividing every three, four years. And that keeps the plants fresh, stops them hollowing out in the centre. When it comes to kale, it stays in if it still looks all right, really, because I tend to put a load of it in as a winter crop. So I like it. It tends, what I find with brassicas, they tend to look quite scrappy through the summer. And then as the temperatures cool towards the autumn, they tend to really come into their own a little bit and they look better plants. So I, I would try and graze them through the winter, but I would keep them on if they still were doing that for me into the following uh, summer. I probably wouldn't get more than two seasons out of them, but I might try Anton's uh, varieties and see if that lasts longer. I think you're now looking at a lot of people, because our time is so pressed, there's a lot more interested in permaculture, um, in agroforestry. So I think it's a good idea we look into more perennial planting. And obviously that's good for soil health, et cetera, as well, because you're not moving stuff around all the time. I know when I worked in Africa, there was a lot of agroforestry out there. And that was all about stopping slash and burn because you were fixing the you were fixing the site. So you'd have fruit trees and then you'd have cassava and yam and stuff underneath that. You might even have timber trees mixed in amongst it. So it's a fascinating subject and uh, maybe kale's a good place to start. So is it one of those cases where if you've grown some kale it's done well just leave it in and see what happens you can do yeah and just cut back the flowers a bit to get and so that it will produce new shoots then keep it in there but some varieties it just won't won't work so well we've talked a lot about kale any other brassicas that you can grow as a perennial anton um there's the perennial nine star broccoli which produces these sort of little white broccoli shoots every so often and you can get both the sort of broccoli shoots off those and the leaves. And we've also at one stage inherited a Portuguese cabbage that grew a bit like a sort of tree in one of our plots as well. So that's another thing that you could have a go at. Well, I'm completely fascinated by this. I think the answer here is we'd love to hear more from anybody who's listening. Um, if they've got any advice on on growing brassicas as a perennial crop, brassicas we've not mentioned, ones we may not have heard of, um, I think we'd love to hear more. Isn't that right, Chris? 
Certainly, yeah. There'll be there's always someone out there who'll teach you something. So I'm sure there'll be a few answers or a few suggestions coming in. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have plenty of brassicas on a postcard. That's it for our July podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to feed and water, and fingers crossed for the weather you need for all your plants to flourish. I do hope you're beginning to enjoy picking a few flowers and perhaps harvesting some fruit and vegetables. And don't worry too much about the weeds. It's summer, a time to relax and enjoy what you're growing. And let us know how you get on. You can contact us through the Garden Organic website. And if you've any questions you'd like us to include, do please email or write in. You can also find us on all social media platforms. We're at Garden Organic UK. It's always great to hear from you. Thanks again to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue, and to Kevin McLeod for the music. Music.